Yesterday, I went to the uh, Kaimaki Business and Professional Association luncheon where our Jim Becker was the speaker, and it was a wonderful occasion until the end when um, a gentleman who was there came up, introduced himself to me. We had a nice little visit. He walked away, and then he turned around and he came back. Um, he said, I'd like to give you my card. And uh, the nice gentleman uh, works with the Manoa Cottage Care Homes. Um, <laughs> there's one in Kaimakee. Skilled nursing facilities specializing in dementia and Alzheimer's care. <laughs> and he hadn't even heard me preach. <laughs> so, bear with me, I will try my very best to stay on target and remember what I'm to say. <laughs> well, we are going to talk about joy today, and I specifically asked for that song, Joy to the World, the Lord Has Come, Let Earth Receive Her King. It's not just a Christmas carol, but an outpouring of thanks for what has happened to us because the Lord came, because He came into the world, because He came into our hearts. And the result of that has been joy in our lives. At one point, Jesus even explains his teaching as a way to convey his joy to us. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You probably have heard of C.S. Lewis if you read the, any of the... Uh, Narnia Chronicles, uh, like the, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and other helpful Christian books that he wrote. You may not have known that this man, who was a professor at both Oxford and Cambridge in England, uh, as a young man was, uh, was a dedicated atheist and wanted nothing to do with God, with religion. But he was also an honest man who felt he shouldn't come to a conclusion without studying the evidence. And so he studied. And one night, by himself in his room, he said he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom. He became a believer and this great, great Christian influence of the last century. When he wrote his autobiography, he entitled it appropriately, Surprised by Joy. Because joy is the last word that comes to many people's mind when they think about the Christian faith, when they think about us Christians, and about what they think is our dour way of life. <clears throat> but, but joy is the dominant quality of the Christian walk. And it's the second characteristic named in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It couldn't be more obvious to us. And with that in mind, we have to turn to the book of Philippians, which is the Apostle Paul's most joyful letter. And in the fourth chapter, the fourth verse, he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. And that is in the imperative voice. It's the, it, the verb is, the verb form is the form that we use when we give orders. Do this, do that. And the implication and the use of that is that we can do what we are told. So he writes in the imperative, with the confidence that those who are reading what he is writing have the ability 
to be in control of their lives. So, rejoice in the Lord. Always, I'll tell you again, rejoice. This is something you can do. And, and that word underscores both his meaning and his confidence in them. Now, there's nothing naive about this man. He's not saying put on rose-colored glasses and just smile and giggle all the way through life. Not at all. Bad things happen. Everybody knows that bad things happen. Bad things happen to everybody. It isn't so much what happens to us that matters as who we are when it happens to us. What kind of a person does it happen to? So this whole passage is an appeal for us to be actors in our lives and not mere reactors to what happens. This is the same man who, who described his own experience. This is over in 2 Corinthians. He says, I've, I've, been in, I've been in prison. He's comparing himself with his critics. I've been in prison more frequently, flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. And he goes on, but that's enough. This is the man with that kind of a life experience who writes, Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord Always. What is this, some kind of masochism? Divided personality? The ravings of a man who goes through life with rose-colored glasses? No. But what he's written deserves a closer look, and we're going to give it that closer look now. Fourth chapter of Philippians. There are three essentials that I see here to achieving the joy that he wants us to experience. The first one is simply take charge of your feelings Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That is, be in charge of your feelings. And then he goes on, let your, evident, your, your gentleness be evident to all. The, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In that brief passage... There are six exhortations and a promise. Rejoice, be gentle, don't be anxious, pray, give thanks, take your needs to God. And, and the promise is peace. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at that more closely. Uh, next Sunday, I'm going to break this series already because next Sunday is Father's Day and mothers always get the attention. So I want to preach a Father's Day sermon <laughs> because I think we deserve to. So. All right. But what he is suggesting here in this passage is that what he wants of us is the exact opposite of whining or excusing ourselves with the, I can't help it or I can't help myself. No, we choose joy because without joy, life loses its luster. One Sunday morning in church, <clears throat> I glanced behind me. In those days, we had a choir, choir was back here. And I glanced behind, and there, to my surprise, I saw Jack Hobbs. 
the last guy I expected to see in a choir. He wasn't a choir member. The last time I had seen him was earlier in that same week when he was in the front row as I spoke for his son's funeral. You don't expect a man who's just buried his son to be in the choir the next Sunday. He buried his son because they were out that week. Uh, his son John was our son Lane's best friend. and They were to go together that day and fly in the ultralight that ja John and uh, his father Jack had built. For some reason our son couldn't go. They went anyway. And, and John was flying the plane, banked it too sharply, and it plummeted to the earth and he was killed instantly. And his father is in the choir singing. So after church, I went up to him and asked what he was doing in the choir. And he said, so simply, I need some praise in my life. Boy, do I understand what he was saying. He was, he was taking charge of his feelings, of his emotions. There's a reason that we can read words like this in so many of the Psalms. This is the 100th. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We know from the, the scripture tells us that the Lord enjoys that praise. But what we also know personally is our psyches demand that praise. Because we're taking charge. Now, we're not the only ones who say, take charge of your feelings. There was a song that was popular not too long ago by Bobby McFerrin, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Do you remember that? Oh, my goodness. Here are the words of the first two stanzas. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. In every life we have some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Be happy. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry. Be happy. The landlord say your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry. Be happy. Look at me. I'm happy. And it goes on and on. Don't worry. Be happy. Ta-da, ta-da. Do you know how that song sounds to a man who's just lost his son? Mindless happiness is not what we need. We need joy. And this related to praise. And it has to do with taking charge of our feelings. So we read, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Take charge of your feelings. And then, take charge of your thinking. And that's what we get into here in verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true... Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Here's the, here's the problem about talking. We're the only person, I'm the only person who hears everything I say. So I am reinforcing my attitude all the time. My big argument against swearing doesn't have so much to do with the meaning of the individual words as the fact that if you are t given to swearing all the time, you are all the time beating your mind down. Because you're the only person who has to put up with what you say all the time. And when you are negative, critical, grumpy, you're the only one who knows how bad you really are. Because you're the only one who hears yourself all the time. Accentuating the negative. Reinforcing your misery. So, take charge of your thinking. Instead of thinking about uh, what's coming to me, about what's coming to me all the time, start thinking about what's going out from you all the time. If you're in pursuit of happiness, don't worry, be happy. You'll end up playing the victim. You'll feel you are the victim because you're not getting the happiness that you think you deserve because bad, bad things will happen to you. But they happen to everybody. So what makes it possible for some people to rise above their accidents, their bad turn of fortune? And others, well, others do seem to have the ability to make lemonade out of lemons, don't they? Into each life, some rain must fall. We have heard that all our lives. Sometimes it isn't just rain. Sometimes it's a cloudburst or a deluge. But some people seem to rise above the circumstances because they've taken charge of their thinking. I, I'm changing my sermon this morning from Friday night at this point because I read the bulletin. <clears throat> I hadn't read the bulletin before last Sunday night, and uh, this rascal, Pastor Ron, has just, he's preached my sermon. You could actually go home right now if you want to because what I'm, I'm going to read part of this to you. Don't go home until we've taken the offering. I forgot about that. <laughs> so he writes to the <clears throat> dear family and friends, tells about this wonderful time that they're having in Missouri while his substitute is working so hard, and he didn't put that in here. <laughs> now, the river was like glass the first couple of days, the wind virtually still, and then he talks about the wind coming up, whipping up in the third day, and they had a they had a real gully washer. Lightning flashes over the river, resulting in rumbling thunder, brought strong winds. And he, then he talks about this poor little confused raccoon who had to find shelter under the neighbor's cabin when the hay that he was under was blown away. Storm warnings on the radio. What to do? We prayed. We found a safe place in the cabin away from the big cottonwood tree above and enjoyed the spectacle taking place outside. Then the preacher in him comes out. That storm was a microcosm of life. We're enjoying a season of calm when a storm strikes, suddenly or preceded by gathering storm clouds. The storm may come in the form of a deteriorating or broken relationship, loss of a loved one, financial crisis, or life-altering diagnosis. 
about which he knows so much. How should we respond? First of all, we shouldn't assume we're exempt from trials. After all, Jesus said we would have tribulations, but promised victory. Secondly, we shouldn't be surprised, realizing God has a purpose embedded. <clears throat> Peter wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Storms in life provide an opportunity to reaffirm our trust in him who is over the tempest. Winds of adversity may catch us off guard, but can strengthen the roots of our faith as we lean into the gusts that assail us. Here's the thing. We don't need to endure storms with grim-faced resolve to endure. We have a Father in heaven who loves us. Rather than squirm in the squall, we can triumph over the tempest, enjoying or at least appreciating the spectacle around us. So what are the Arnolds, Ron and Dee, doing? They're in a storm. The only reason I'm here is because of their storm. And because I've been inspired by how they're facing that storm and where they're seeking shelter and how they have remained positive. They're expect experiencing and expressing joy. They've chosen to think about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. And the result is that in spite of everything, in spite of cancer, in spite of pain, in spite of the uncertainties of the immediate future, they're teaching us joy. Well, we have one more section to look at. This has been about Paul, the recipient, as he writes. But then in, in this next passage, I'm going to skip the one Verses 10 through 16, because that's on peace, and that will come later. I want to go down to verse 17, where he instructs us, if we really want to have joy in our lives, to increase our giving. He thanks his friends in Philippi for their gifts. You understand, he's, he's, he's as it were, locked up and uh, dependent upon other people for food, even. And this wonderful church in Philippi more than once sent what we would, I suppose, call a missions offering to help him out. So he writes to them, not that I seek the, oh, he said, you said sent aid once and again for my necessities, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Not that I seek the gift. It's not about what I get. But I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. What fruit? 
I'm suspecting it's the fruit of the Spirit. And prominent in that list of items in the fruit of the Spirit is joy. There's such joy in giving. Didn't understand my my parents at all when I was a child and it was Christmas time and we were around the Christmas tree and we were opening our presents and our parents just sat there. Didn't seem to be much interested in opening their own presents. But we could tell how much fun they had when we opened ours. I knew how much fun my dad was having because he played with the stuff he gave me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the joy of giving. Now here's what what I learned in a real hurry about you Kaimaki Christians. I was so impressed my first Sunday here back in February with the with joyful spirit of this congregation. And then the more I heard about the church and you told me about the church, the more often I heard a, a word in relation to the church, and that was, this is a generous church. Then I understood the joy. They go together. Now, some of you might not yet fully understand this. All of you who are givers, you know what I'm saying. All of you who have not yet learned the joy of giving are probably thinking already, oh, that's that's just like every other preacher I've ever known. All he talks about is money. Well, there's a reason. You think that we preachers talk about money because we want, all we want is your money. We talk about money because all we want is your joy. We want you to experience the fullness of life. And we we don't know how to get you there if your addiction to money stands between you and God. Jesus said, you know, you cannot serve God and money. It's as clear as it can be, and you can't. Another thing you might be thinking when I'm on this subject is, well, it's easy for that preacher to say, easy for him to talk about joy, easy for him to talk about giving. He doesn't know my world. He doesn't live in my dog-eat-dog world. He hasn't gone through what I'm going through. But the truth is, I have. And I can show you my scars. But I've also known some real heroes of the faith who have inspired me and taught me and who are the most joyful, positive people I know. I want to tell you about one of them. I want to tell you about one of the greatest spiritual giants I've ever known. His name is Bill Bish. Bill Bish, when he was alive, stood up to my shoulder. And the reason that that's how tall he was is that he... He had a hunchback. He was crippled. He loved the Lord even as a child. And as a child, he promised that he would become a missionary. But when he was 12, he was struck by polio. And it left him with a badly, badly bent body. The hunchback. One leg that when he walked, he had to kind of toss in front of him because there was just skin wrapped around bone. Had to wear a plastic girdle to hold his rib cage off of his hip bones so that he could walk. He was a physical mess. When he was young, he fell in love. And Lucy, a woman of real character, loved him back, and they announced to her parents that they wanted to get married. They wouldn't have it. They were not going to have 
their daughter married to a helpless cripple. So Lucy did what so many young people do when their parents tell them, no, she, she married him anyway. <laughs> and they had a wonderful marriage. He supported her at first by pushing their baby buggy from door to door in the neighborhood selling Raleigh products. That's how he started. That's not how he finished. When I knew him, he was in his 50s. He was the leading State Farm insurance salesman in the state of Oregon. This little helpless cripple. They had a good marriage. Lucy died too young of cancer. Bill remarried. And uh, when I got to know him, he was an elder in the St. John's Christian Church in Portland, Oregon. I was the youth minister there. I stayed in their home every weekend for two years for free. Elizabeth did my laundry. Joy resented that. She said that was terrible training. Um, <laughs> but she was as good as Bill. And um, I learned not all, but some of the giving that Bill did, he quietly, when he learned that somebody was in trouble, would give them a gift, often anonymously. I know about this because I was a recipient of that gift, in addition to the free lodging that I enjoyed. The church was in financial trouble at one point, deep trouble. He mortgaged their home so that he could give the money to the church to keep the church going. One, one evening when I was there, I came, I came home in the evening. I don't know where I had been, but Bill was in his chair in the living room, and he was just nearly jumping in that chair as he told me with a great big smile on his face. He had just been meeting with his accountant, and he discovered that that year he was able to give three tithes to the church, 30% of his income. That was in addition to all the other things. Why am I telling you about Bill Bish? Because... Well, because nobody influenced me as a young man more than Bill Bish did. By his simple joy in living. After what he'd been through, after what he was, after all the heartbreak, he just gave and gave and gave, and the result of that was joy unstoppable. I want to read you one more scripture. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 46, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading this from the Revised Standard Version. Ordinarily, I use the New International Version, and as you know, from version to version, you will find a, a difference uh, of a word here and there, because translating from one language to another, many of you are multilingual, you know, it's hard to be exactly precise. Well, I, I, I've chosen, and by the way, it's a wonderful thing that we live now in this day where there are so many translations because we can keep looking until we get the one that says what we want it to say, which is, which is what I've done in this case because I learned this first in this version. It struck me then and it strikes me now. It's about the, the apostles. This is the day of Pentecost. The, the 3,000 have just been uh, baptized. The church is just getting started, and here's what... What um, the scripture says, these new Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and their goods, and they distributed them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts. That's the word I was after. They partook of food with glad and generous hearts. Now here's the test. Think of the gladdest people you know, the most joyful people you know, and let me ask you about them. Are they generous? Now, turn it around. Think of the most generous people you know. And let me ask you, are they glad? The truth is, gladness and generosity go together. They're inseparable. And that's why, that's why Paul is telling us about giving. And why, why I'm saying, if, if you're in the blues, if you're in the doldrums, if life seems too tough, if, if you seem too sad, I know one thing you can do for sure to make a difference. Increase your giving. Find those who need what you have and help them. I think I'm already over time, but I just thought of one thing I did that I wanted to share with you. When I was in college, I had no money. I was working my way through college. I was dirt poor. But I discovered that one of the young women in our class was going to have to drop out of college because she didn't have any money even less than I did. I, I was moved by her story, and so I got a, a, an envelope, and I put a $10, a $10 bill. Now, this is back when $10 was $10, okay? <laughs> I put a $10 bill in that envelope. I put it in her mailbox, and I never told anybody. She stayed in school. I don't think it was just my $10. I have to tell you, though, what I felt when I did that. In fact, it felt so good. I've been tempted to do something like that again. Because, because a generous heart is always a glad heart.